Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, to Episode 7 of our monthly Connecting with Classics series, where I, Aaron, and my co-host, Don Shanahan of Every Movie Has a Lesson, have a conversation about a widely regarded great film from the past. This week, we are joined by a special guest who last year completed the enormous challenge of watching Alfred Hitchcock's entire filmography. He is Reed Lackey from the podcast The Fear of God, friend of the show, former guest appearance, and probably the biggest Hitchcock fan that I know. Welcome, Reed. Hey, Aaron. Thank you for having me. Hi, Don. Hey, how you doing, Reed? Thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. Well, folks, like Aaron said, uh, we have been circling this movie coming up here in, for July uh, for months. Ever since it was officially celebrating its 60th anniversary on May 9th, we have wanted to tackle Vertigo by Alfred Hitchcock. Um, next to Casablanca, it's probably the highest regarded film connecting the classics we'll present in this series during this first year. I say first year because we're totally doing this for like 17 years. Um, we have 100 we, movies uh, to get through we, at we, a we, minimum. Uh, it's going to take us a while here. Um uh, we here dive into the AFI's top 100. It's normally our source and list here. Uh, but Vertigo um, has kind of a special place outside of it as a second metric because it is on top of the 50 greatest films of all time as voted on by the British Film Institute's Sight and Sound magazine, which is normally where this film gets its championship belt of the best ever. Ladies and gentlemen, they don't get much better than this. So here we go with Vertigo. Remember, folks, we are a podcast that carries a spoiler warning because we're talking about classics and you know old and venerated films uh, there are a lot of people in our audience who have not seen these films before and uh, we do encourage these podcasts to kind of be listened to after you've seen the film so turn off now come back later if you haven't seen the film you'll enjoy the conversation we have all right so uh with vertigo the kind of the history of vertigo is this it's 1958 so it's coming up on its it just passed its 60th anniversary cost less than most of hitchcock's films um at the time under three million dollars and it barely broke even on its original run vertigo was really met with incredibly mixed critics reviews upon its release and uh really only kind of rose up as something a little bit greater with reissues and more time in terms of awards we normally kind of cover that here in history that was only nominated for two academy awards uh, best Art Direction and Best Sound. Best Art Direction from Harry Bumstead, which is outstandingly impressive in the film we'll talk about later. Um, lost to the musical uh, uh, Gigi, which swept most everything that won that year uh, at the Oscars, uh, winning nine total awards over things like The Defiant Ones and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof that same year. For Best Sound, uh, Vertigo lost to South Pacific. But those are the only two Oscar nominations. So I love a lot South of people- Pacific. It is. I mean, it's a solid musical. And I, when you say sound, yeah, I mean, the vibe there really fits and works. Um, I've never seen uh, Gigi, so I, I don't know. My, that's a swinging musical that's beyond my palate. Um, Reed, have you seen Gigi? I haven't seen either Gigi or South Pacific. So uh, I think Vertigo got robbed. But of course, what do I know? No, 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 no. I, I, I'm with you. Like, um, it, it, I think a lot of us who, who've you know seen this film and, and celebrated it, are probably putting Novak and Herman as, as shoo-in Oscar nominee kinds of potential there, but it sure. didn't happen. In terms of where we go to the AFI, um, it was rated uh, number 61 on the original list of the top 100 films. For the 10th anniversary edition, it rose all the way to nine. It is the number one ranked mystery of the AFI. It is number 12 for film scores, and it is number 18 for the thrills list. 
So it has since in its day uh, really encouraged and, and grown in, in that kind of regard. To finish that kind of out a little bit, the Library of Congress uh, reserved it for distinction or for preservation in 1989. Because imitation is the serious, sincerest form of flattery, uh, this film has been mocked in parody by Mel Brooks's High Anxiety and celebrated in homage form from Brian De Palma in different layers of obsession and body double on his filmography. The wave of critical reevaluation for this film really began in 1982 when Sight and Sound put it at number seven on their best ever list. It raised to number two in 2002 and it overtook Citizen Kane for the number one spot on that list in 2012, ending a 50-year reign for Orson Welles' masterpiece as the top overall film of all time. And that's what puts it up here for us to see today. So... I find it interesting that a great many of these classics seem to have not won a ton of awards. Right. And it seems to imply or speak to this idea that maybe we can't Mm -hmm. really fully evaluate a film's, you know, greatness within the first couple of days after seeing it. Yeah. I think that seems to be the case with Vertigo and a bunch of these others. Well, you know how I feel about this with the instant masterpiece label that gets thrown around way too often. And even just <laughs> even just the word great. I had a I have a, uh, a critic friend here in town who's the president of the film association, the Chicago Critics Film Association. It's so not the group I'm in, but uh, Dan Geyer of the Daily Herald. He um he kind of gave me some advice when he critiques some of my work a couple of years ago. He's like, never use the word great unless you're really talking about something great. So I, it's, it, that's a word I've removed from my vocabulary, period. It, it, it still makes me scratch my head about maybe like even like the last five years worth of Oscars. Like, is there some film we've all missed that is going to be some juggernaut classic in 15 years? And, you know, it makes you wonder. So, like, the biggest thing for me is when I'm looking at the past few Oscar seasons, I think about the fact that I think Oscars and and perhaps awards in general are really just losing their relevance and their touch with the sense of timelessness because they're they're lauding things that they recognize as criti- critically successful right now uh and they're lauding things that are sometimes popular with audiences but for the most part i feel like for instance last year for the most part with an exception of maybe one or two items was a largely forgettable year uh, that could probably be said about the last couple of years there's a few standouts over the past five to ten years but really i feel like it's time and the public the populace at large that really picks what is going to be a classic and what's going to be regarded highly over time and some people might say oh it's because critical consensus is out of touch but i disagree with that because i feel like it's still critics who are a part of these afi lists these sight and sound lists. It's still largely these critical assessments that are causing reemergence of films and then causing the populace to discover them anew and afresh and realize, wow, yes, there's something really magnificent about these films. And I do think it's something that just time and opinion has to sort of vet out what is going to be lasting and what's going to remain timeless over a period of 10 to 15 years. I think once something's lasted maybe 10 to 15 years, then you can begin to sort of say, okay, I think this one's going to be around for a little while. I back that, Aaron. How do you feel about that? Oh, I agree. I mean, I I don't think there's been more than a handful of times that I've ever thought about a classic film or rewatched one and and gone, oh, you know, this must have been very culturally relevant at the time that it came out, and so that's a real strength of this film. Whereas (laughs) that's the key point now in what is being praised the highest is are you – culturally relevant. I mean, for the most part, you know, 
uh, it's such a huge part of it. I mean, things like three billboards is, is a perfect example. Mm-hmm. It's a relevant co- topic right now. Uh, right. And these films get a lot of praise for that, but are they really that standout? I actually wonder if get out is going to hold up mm. the way that people yeah. propped it up. I mean, it's a good film. It's an entertaining film, but I think that, because of its relevancy and its its kind of shocking first depiction of a thing that we've all wondered about, mm-hmm. it's maybe gotten a little overrated because it does have, in my opinion, some some issues and some kind of non perfect moments in it. D- dare I say, Moonlight versus La La Land? Ah, <gasps> uh, yeah. I, mean, I, I think both of those, though, uh, honest to goodness, those are both, yeah. in my opinion, incredibly Second. worthy. Yeah, I think they're yeah. going to hold up. Yeah. Anywho, I, I, yeah, it's it's an interesting. Yeah factually when we notice something like vertigo that has been ignored for or much of its actual award season and then all of a sudden now it's the number one considered you know right. of all time by, by this site so well so specifically so, oh go ahead. yeah go ahead don no no you go ahead well, Reed. i was just gonna say like specifically with vertigo and with the other four lost hitchcocks there was not only an absence of presence like just from people's minds but people couldn't see it for like 40 or 50, uh, I think it's like, no, for 30 years, people couldn't see this film. Um, And so there were five films that were just lost to history uh, because of copyright issues and they had fallen out of print. Um, And then in 1984, those five lost Hitchcocks, most of which starred Jimmy Stewart, I believe Rear Window was among them. I think possibly even Rope was among them. And so those films reemerged and uh, it was in 1984 and then a whole new generation of people discovered it. And I think fueled a lot of the the critical reassessment and elevated those films as high in Hitchcock's overall ranking and high in American film rankings in general. I th- definitely. I mean, I think home video. I know we laugh at be, you know at uh, VHSs and, and DVDs and all that, but but they keep things in the lexicon. You know, um, I know Netflix has the algorithms where the topical stuff is on top, but filmstruck and the things that are out there that keep classic film uh current and the, and the proponents and the folks that advertise it enough to get it out there i i think i don't think we'll ever have a forgotten period of film again which is always great to see but at the same time it's nice to see these things get rediscovered right well um, reed when did you see the film for the first time First time I saw it, I was probably 13 or 14 years old. Uh, I remember my cousin mentioning to me, and he just described it as like, it's a good flick. You should watch it. And so that was about the most uh, that I had. But going into it about 13 or 14, there was a lot that obviously went over my head. Um, I was immediately drawn to it, but it didn't gain a full appreciation for it until rewatches over the next few years. But yeah, it was about 13 or 14. Aaron, what about you? Um, March, um, March, uh, March of 2015, actually. So I, it was a lost over a lot longer than that for me, Reed. Um, I had wow. a buddy back in March, 2015, his name's Todd and uh, he's a huge movie fan as well, cinephile. And, and he had turned me on to watching some classics that I hadn't caught up to yet. It was right when the podcast was about to start. And we started again by me watching, North by Northwest, which was one of his all-time favorites. And after that, it led me to saying, well, hey, there's this movie called Vertigo that's on the top of this list, so maybe I will check it out. And I was immediately in love with it. I'm a Jimmy Stewart fan, huge Jimmy Stewart fan. I mean, he's probably my favorite actor of all time. And so right away, it gripped me. But um, yeah, it, it it was a recent thing for me discovering this film and Hitchcock in general. 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm not far behind you. This was a, a long time blind spot for me and I probably didn't see it until after it also ascended to the top of that sight and sound list. Um, um, I remember like how the artist borrowed chunks of the, of Herman's score, uh, on top of, you know, their score in key moments. And I'm like, gosh, that's an odd choice. And, and it was an odd choice. Then I kind of just wanted to go, all right, let me go see what the film is all about. Cause if that score is that good, the film must be that good. Um, I, I don't remember the exact date when I saw it, but it had to be after 2012. Um, I don't remember really connecting with it at first. Um, I, I kind of called it slow and I didn't get a real sense of what all the hype was about. Um, like, like I think a lot of things were over my head even in that time. Um, but I tell you what, I was inspired by Aaron to watch it again when he saw it in 70 millimeter about a year ago. And, um, mm. that was a, that was a good. And then when him, him singing those praises made me sit down for a bigger, fuller viewing in it. And it has helped since. Well, what about rewatches? Have you watched it many times between then or was or was I'll, it just then and then right now for the podcast? Uh, for me, I'll, I'll chime in first. It was right now for the podcast. Um, but I did make it a point this time to sit down and say, all right, I, I soaked the film up a few times. I've, I've seen it on its own merits. Let me try to get another educational angle to it or just learn a little more or get a little smarter with it. So I turned on the William Friedkin commentary with the Vista series DVD that I have, and it was extraordinary. Um, Hearing both his love of the film and his expertise on just, yeah, obviously he's a celebrated director himself. So, um, just his wealth of knowledge was, was very engaging. Um, it really acted as guidance throughout the, in, the very much intentional haze that the film presents, uh, because he's sitting here kind of play by playing you through, you know, this is what's happening and he's got this voice and this is about this and about that. And just, it was a very good heavy commentary and I am. And it was more on emotional reaction than it was on, oh, look at the way they, this fun fact about the placement of the camera, or this fun fact about uh, a set location. It was, um, he did a very good job of just, you know, conveying purpose um, while still giving you the nuggets. So um, this was a really good rewatch for me. Um, yeah, I, just how did it, did you guys come back to it recently or how many times have you seen it as well? Uh, I'll chime in next. I've seen this film probably five or six times in my life, and I've seen it twice within the past year because I watched it, as Aaron referenced when he um, was saying hello to me, that um, last year uh, in 2017, I went through Hitchcock's entire filmography. So I watched all 53 of his core films, and I watched Vertigo then trying to assess it in light of Hitchcock's overall filmography. And then on my show, The Fear of God, we covered it uh, pretty recently, and I watched it again for that. So that was really only just a couple of months ago. To the degree that it was fresh enough, I did not specifically revisit it for this podcast because I had already seen it twice in the past year. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it, I've seen it probably five or six times. Every single time I see it, something new steps off of the screen and just assaults me. Uh, there's some new theme to explore, some new element to consider. Um, it's a really rich and full film. Yeah, for me, it was September 2017, Don, that you're talking about when I got a chance to see it during a 70 millimeter festival. And I mean, holy cow, that just shocked me and ro just rocketed the film right up my all-time list. I'd, I'd already kind of fallen in love with it right from the first viewing, but I appreciated it so much more seeing it on the big screen like that. I highly recommend that to listeners just in general. I've seen Casablanca on the big screen too. And the 
that's the way you're supposed to see movies. Okay. That's, that's how they're made. That's what they're made for. Uh, I know we watch a lot at home on Netflix and Hulu and all of our streaming services, but movies are made to be seen in a theater. And when you get a chance to go see some of these classics, go do it, you know, check out your fathom events that they have going on. Other theaters that have like old classics that play on weekends during the summer and go to some of these because it will be a completely different experience of a movie that you've already seen a million times and you'll remember the theater version of it. And that's, that's what happened to me guys. When I saw it again, uh, I love cinematic explorations of obsession. It's one of my favorite topics and Freed can point it out in his commentary. This film is not about its plot. It's about obsession and guilt and he couldn't be more right. And I watched it with the commentary this latest time as well, Don. In fact, you inspired me when I saw that you were watching it with the commentary. I ran out and bought myself the Blu-ray just so that I could uh, take that in as well. And it's just a great film about obsession that I can really relate to. I, I relate to Scotty. I relate to Midge um, and, and various points in the film. So it's really something that connects with me on a personal level. And then when you add on top of that, it's incredibly great technical brilliance and just Hitchcock's perfect type of direction, man, it's one that I will watch many, many more times. I'm sure. Yeah. That's, those are the benchmarks that really, that sit with me in the respect department is, it's the, is the technical prowess and artistic just interpret just size of it and scope. Um, I love that Bernard Herman score. Um, it always grabs me. I love the peaks and valleys of, the, of that. He weaves into the stuff. Um, I, I, I enjoyed, um, Freakin's comment, uh, the nugget. I never knew that it was kind of spun a little bit from the Tristan and his old opera, which I, I know that music and it's really, really good. And, it, and I could, I, once I heard that nugget, I could start catching it in my ear and that was really fun to see. But, um, but, um, I know you guys listed it later and I know you guys expound on it more, but this, this film as an educational, um, kind of exhibit uh, on mood and color and photography and pacing and set design and just that emotional infusion being placed above and about a, a past narrative conveniences is just, this is a clinic. This is Hitchcock's for me, this is Hitchcock's clinical best. Um, and as much as I can respect it at that level, you know, it's still an arm's length distance away from me from being this film that I embrace and love. Like Rear Window is my number one for Hitchcock in terms of like the favorite versus best. And then, then I go to North by Northwest and I go to Psycho before I ever get to Vertigo. But, um, the, I can't deny just how really well made this is and how the entertainment impact can still resonate just because it looks and moves so well. So, um, you know, it's, it's kind of hard, you know, it's hard. I, like I said, it's, it's hard to label this as a favorite, but at the same time, man, it, you cannot help but be impressed about it on those layers and levels that you're talking about. Um, Reed, I know you dive way further into this than, than even I could <laughs> attempt. So tell me about where you're, where you're resonating with this. So, um, obviously we've all mentioned that the, that the technical brilliance of this film is almost unparalleled. Um, there's what I love about it is that. It really is three separate types of films in one. Its runtime is about two hours and ten minutes, and it breaks down into three 40 to 45 minute sections. The first section is all about the the mystery. The they they prop up this Carlotta Madeline sort of obsessive mystery, and then it shifts about a third of the way through to becoming almost like this romantic affair film between Scotty and Madeline, and then. 
it flips in the last third of the film and and jumps yet again to become a whole different type of film. And that gets into the obsession and the guilt thing that that we're talking about. It even switches protagonists at one point uh, at about the two thirds mark. We shift from it really being about Scotty to us really being in the shoes of, well, uh, Madeline, but now uh, Julie. And it's like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> like w- there's one of the things we talk about the technical prowess of this film, but this film is terribly terribly complex it's a film that not only rewards rewatching it almost demands rewatching i would not be surprised by anybody who walked away from this film after a ton of praise and thought yeah i don't really know what to make of all of it like it just wasn't what i was expecting i say that that's the most common thing the most common comment review of anyone who's seeing vertigo for the first time is that was not what i was expecting um, there's an there's an aura about Hitchcock of this sort of chase films, these suspense thrillers, and there's definitely suspense in Vertigo, some of it riveting, but it's not the type of thing that people would expect from going into a Hitchcock film. It's certainly not traditional horror. It's not traditional suspense chase thrillers. It's much more cerebral. It's much more emotional. And that really impresses me about how he was able to interweave all of these complex ideas and metaphors while still keeping uh, a uh, still keeping a hold of a pretty complicated plot because it's a very complicated plot um, it, it, to the degree that it would be almost impossible to briefly sum up without going beat for beat throughout the entire film. But I think one of the things that obviously we could praise the performances, all of the performances across the board are fantastic. Stewart actually getting back into a bit of history. Um, Stewart was very much criticized for being cast into this role. Hitchcock was criticized for casting him in this role. Um, they said that he was much too old to be a believable sort of romantic interest to the very young Kim Novak. And he was almost twice her age. And so uh, there was a lot of criticism about that casting to the degree. This is a little sad, but to the degree, Stewart was one of Hitchcock's most favored collaborators. But after this, they never worked together again. And it was very much because there was a lot of criticism against Stewart's casting in this film and the critical backlash, the audience ambivalence. Uh, Hitchcock kind of softly blamed some of those choices on Vertigo's failure. Um, so then he and Stewart never worked together again. But then in hindsight, in retrospect, you look back and it's like Stewart seems so perfect for this role because he's such an everyman. And then he's gets swept up into these things. I think part of what it does for me is when I see him being swept up in so many of these complicated feelings and these complicated choices, it resonates all the more powerfully, the darker elements that each of us, even the nicest and kindest of us with the best of intentions can sometimes have lying beneath the surface when we're pushed in just the right directions, when we're shoved by circumstances or by manipulation uh, in that we we have some darker shades that are resting beneath the surface of obsession, of guilt, of shame, uh, of control, the, the need for control. All of those elements are there. And so every single time I watch the film, like I said before, I see something new jumps off the screen at me. I like the way you put that with, with Stuart because just like you said, the everyman quality where this is a departure from the nice guy version of him because, because of the depth of sur- surrealness that he, he has to take his character and, and, and to dive into being truly convincing with the obsession where I admit I, I turned to that my modern brain on and go, could, could our everyman actors of today do this part convincingly? And for as good as Tom Hanks is, I don't know if he can do this. I don't know if we've seen Tom right. Hanks do something like this. Like we've seen him be clever. We've seen him be, you know, um, sly, but I don't know if we've ever seen him look 
just completely derailed and absorbed in a film where I don't know if like him or like Paul Rudd could do this, you know? So yeah, this is right. where Stuart shows his, just how good he is. Yeah. It's, it's definitely what allows me to relate to Scotty so well. And because it feels natural, it feels just like that growing obsession that, you know, I would have, or I guess in all honesty, probably have had <laughs> obsessing over someone of the opposite sex, you know, and just by appearance and, you know, sure. Madeline has this mysterious allure and she's oozing sexuality. And that's one of the themes that I really attach to because it's not really her personality. It's somewhat a little bit later that he begins to be entranced by that as well. But at that point, is it even really her personality or is it this personality of a ghost? We don't know, but it's that. And then it's also the fun twist of being the one on the other side of the coin where there's someone that is a midge. And I know I've had a midge in my life, right? Too, where I'm that every man that, that Stuart is playing and Scotty, but there's this, this perfect person that, that wants nothing more than to care about me. And yet you're pushing them away because you're blinded by that desire, uh, that perfect, you know, sparkly thing out there in the distance. And he does it so well. Uh, and, and I love Reed that you mentioned it's a horror movie. Cause this is one of the things I noted on this go around was that moment where he's attempting to craft Judy into Madeline. That whole scene just really resonated deeply because it happens so subtly mm-hmm. and without yeah a big uh, hoopla to it. He just kind of naturally starts slowly having her do more things and asking her to do these things. And it reminds me of that feeling that we get when we desire something that we've lost. He had this thing. He had this relationship with her that he thought he had or was going to try and have, and he wants to get it back. And you have that moment in the film. Oh man, it's crazy where she says, if I do what you tell me, will you love me? And I just like in today's Me Too generation or era, I, I just kind of like my mouth dropped when I heard mm-hmm. that. Definitely. Sure. Well, and then there's his line to her that, that we, uh, we had spent quite a bit of time on this on our show. So I won't belabor that here. But the, that line that he says to her where he's trying to get her to change her hair and he says, it can't matter to you. And in that moment when he says to her, you know, this can't matter to you. He not only strips her of her agency, he strips her of the the possibility that she would ever have agency. So it literally Mm. dismisses, I mean, in this whole idea of, of, you know, the current climate and, and understanding power struggles in sexual relationships and in romantic relationships, even in just opposite sex uh, engagements, you know, like how we're, how we're interacting with each other. Are we doing so with utmost respect and agency or are we subtly, you know, manipulating and controlling and his line to her. Like, I love that you pointed that out, Aaron. The, if I do what you tell me, will you love me? Step steeps to this point of like, I will compromise for acceptance. I will compromise for embracement. And then the other side of it is his very forceful, like this can't matter to you. That pushing of saying like this, this should not be a big deal to you. This should not be important to you. And those entire dynamics are terribly frightening given some of what we've seen play out in recent years and what's been going on for years, but it's really part of the conversation right now. Yeah, well said. Good stuff there, fellas. Well, what I had a couple questions for you guys I wanted to ask. Yeah. One of these is when I recently 
watched right before my Vertigo revisit was Rope. I'd never seen it before. I wanted to check out the Fear of Gods podcast that Reed had done on this film, which I highly recommend, by the way. Um, there is some Thank prescient you. conversation in their episode about uh, cultural um, misuse or uh, accusations based on social media that came out. That Their podcast, by the way, was before this blew up in our actual a real life situation with the director, James Gunn. And so uh, I, I definitely recommend everybody check out that episode and check out the film because it's pretty brilliant. But my point is, what do you think about the crime in Vertigo itself and the setup? Do you think it could work? Because when I was watching Rope and how Rope is all about this perfect crime scenario, it's almost the same thing here where um, Judy's lover is trying to find this method to get rid of his wife so he can be with his lover um how did you guys feel about this did you think it was a believable setup no not at all <laughs> it's a we, pretty it's a stretch <laughs> yeah yeah and even and if you're going to extrapolate it to like today and fingerprints and dna there's no chance i mean this is soap opera stuff here but that but like almost to go back to friedkin it doesn't matter you know where's the emotional twist not the the plot twist like you know like that's the fun part about it whether or not we can have this want of having a perfect crime and we can even will this to be a perfect crime as long as our passion and our emotionality is fulfilled by what we're watching. So that's kind of where I'll, I'll rest with that. Well, and Hitchcock was all about what he, what he termed the MacGuffin, which mm -hmm. the MacGuffin is basically, it's, it's an element to the plot, but it is purely related to plot and it does not need to be explained. It does not need to make sense. And he has one of those in, in most of his films, almost all of his thrillers in North by Northwest. It's whatever document, you know, James Mason yeah. is trying to get out. And he said, Oh, it's in, it's involved in imports and exports or something, you know, uh, rear window. It's why does he kill his wife? We, we don't know <laughs> what's, what's going on. And then in this one, it's very much this, this murder, this almost heinous murder. And I remember thinking several times I've seen this film now. I'm like, wow, the, the layers that uh, that his friend has to go through to plot and plan this out and hire Judy and then get, uh, you know, hinging on Scotty's disability to where he can't climb heights, all of these puzzle pieces to come together just so that he can murder and off his wife. It's it's absolutely uh, convoluted. But again, it's a MacGuffin. You're not supposed to. It, it, you, you spend the film initially thinking this is what's important. And then by the time you get to the film, it's almost the thing you care about the least to the degree that almost nobody, almost no one, maybe we count since we're here discussing this, but almost nobody points out the fact that in this film, a, a woman is just offed. She's just killed and yep. discarded. But we we tend to spend all of our time talking about Scotty, Madeline slash Judy, you know, like that's that's what we tend to spend all of our time talking about. And that's that is Hitchcock's brilliance. But it's also somewhat heinous that that he's able to sort of dismiss a human being so categorically. But that's kind of what his fascination with murder in storytelling is that that it's really about how we respond to what's taking place as much as it's about what is actually taking place, which is why I find him fascinating. I love that. A well, Aaron, how do you answer your own question? Oh, I, I completely agree with what both of you said. I was hoping that you would say that because I was going to freak out if you told me you thought it was realistic. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it, it's, it's completely bonkers and out there and 
could have been foiled at a million different turns uh, and would never have actually worked out in real life. But I think the obsess, it does serve as a means of relaying that what links we can go to because of obsession. You know, I wrote down a note that I said, oh, the things we do when we desire a woman. Mm. Um, you know, and you can replace a man with that or whatever you want. But the point is, when we want someone else or we want some relationship with another human being in that way, it's almost a surrealistic thing where we will go to much more crazy links than you ever would have thought possible. And the plot is, you know, hinging on Scotty doing such a thing. And of course, it works because it's a good cinema and it wouldn't be very good and very entertaining if it didn't work. Um, my other question about, is about the brilliance of Judy's death, I think, because, you know, in her dying, it causes Scotty's acrophobia to be uh, removed. And so in a way, I personally found this, oddly enough, to be a sort of a happy ending. And my question is, do you guys agree with that? And specifically, do you think that Scotty and Judy get what they deserve or do you wish or think that they should have had a different um, kind of comeuppance for either or? Reed, I'll let you go first on this one. Okay, so I categorically do not consider it a happy ending. My apologies, Aaron. <laughs> but uh, no, totally I, think, okay. I, think it's, I, I think it's really, I mean, it's a, I think it's a brilliant ending, but I think it's absolutely a tragedy. Um, these are people who are so undone by their own obsession, so undone by their own inability to register risk and danger and the things that they are stepping into, um, their, their own emotions and their fantasies are unbridled. And because their fantasies have gone to a place to where it's broken into the real world, uh, with Judy becoming Madeline and Scotty recreating Madeline in this very, uh, if we really look at what's happening, on a technical objective level, it's very sadistic and it's really uh, very controlling and very uh, any any psychiatrist would look at this and say this is a terribly toxic relationship. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, to that end, in terms of do they get what they deserve, I will say this. I think that Scotty is as much a victim in the first two thirds of the film as he is a victimizer in the last third of the film. So um, I think that he's that he's very much um, like a uh, basically he did not deserve to be thrust into this thing to begin with. But then he becomes someone who very much kind of uh, all of these obsessions are unearthed in him. And so because they're unearthed in him, um, he kind of does meet the inevitable ends of his own obsessions um, because he can't. I'll have more to say about this when we when we get into like our connecting points and stuff. But he he basically gets to a point to where he has become so locked in again with his own fantasy world that he can't observe. He can't actively observe the real one that's going on right in front of him. And so uh, for me, in terms of do they get what they deserve? I mean, I really want happier endings for them both. But I have to say that whether or not deserve is the appropriate word, I think they meet the inevitable ends of their unwillingness to bridle their fantasies and, and restrict their impulses. And so I think this is the inevitable conclusion for both of them. Okay, okay. Uh, my angle is 
not a happy ending, but probably in a different way. I think this isn't a happy ending because of the curing part, because now to me, he can go up high in places and in buildings. And instead of having the fearful thought, he'll have the reflective thought of, gosh, the last time I was up this high, I lost something. He loses one crutch he could have used to avoid facing the, the, I guess the other thing that Freakin talks about. He now doesn't have the crutch to face the guilt that he's now going to, the new guilt he's now going to have after losing Judy slash Madeline. So I think this isn't a happy ending in that way of now, now as with him being the only one that walks away and now he has to walk away a little freer and a little lighter, just the heaviness to just burden him more. And in terms of what they deserve, I'll be the, I'm not trying to be the sadistic one here, but um, I think, you know, Scotty avoided death at the very opening scene of the film means he probably should have died to see this film be closure. Because I think the woman that needs the person or character that needs to be free is Judy slash Madeline. And I, I admit there's part of me that rooted that was rooting for Scotty to die. You know, that, um, that what he deserves, that what he deserves is, you know, where's his commitment to, or where, where, and I shouldn't say commitment. I guess what I'm trying to say is, um, if there's a guy who deserves to meet his end, I guess, so to speak, or to have that, have it go wrong because of how wrong he took it or how wrong he let it play him, or even because he turned into the victimizer, I, yeah, I, I was hoping she shoved him out the window. Not going to lie. You know, um, I, I was, and I, and maybe even from a Hitchcock level, if there's a shocker, the protagonist doesn't make it for a change, especially the, you know, the darling every man that is, that is Stuart actually dies in a movie. I, I was, if you wanted to twist things and twist the knife really far, that's how far I was willing to twist it in my brain. Wow. I like it. I like yeah. it. Alternate ending by Don. Well, the DVD's got an alternate ending, which I guess kind of in the background explains the husband maybe not getting away with it or being caught by authorities. Am I hearing this right or remembering it right? I hate that ending. Yeah, it was filmed. <laughs> Me it too. was filmed. And and it was filmed because the censors were so abroad that um, the the organizer, the mastermind behind this entire conspiracy gets away scot-free. And uh, or Scotty, Scott free. Oh, free. okay. Free. I was gonna say, yeah, ah, yeah. So, ah, so, nice but he, but he gets away, and so they filmed a scene where all the scene is following that that image, that brilliant, beautiful image that I love of Scotty standing atop the the mission and staring down at the nothingness. We can't see the nothingness that he's staring down into, and um, so other than that, it then cuts to a silent image of him getting back home walking into midge's apartment as they're listening to the radio and the radio is reporting that elster has been like arrested and charged with this murder and everything and that's it midge and scotty don't share any dialogue he just sits down and they listen to that radio and then it credits roll that is the lamest dumbest stupidest ending i think could have possibly concluded this film and i love where the film does actually end yeah maybe i you know what let me let me let me re-edit where i was talking before maybe scotty shouldn't have shoved himself got gotten shoved out that window i would be okay if he would have jumped follow follow his obsession so so don it's interesting you say that because there's some there's some opinions on the, the the question is often asked when the when the screen cuts to black what happens next which is why i hate that other ending what happens next does scotty because he's holding his hands out Yep. And he's very sort of like surrendering. And there's a real legitimate question to be asked of, does he leap or does yep. he go back down the mission? There's a very real question. And I think 
the audience members take on what they walk away with is very telling to that audience member, you know? So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I definitely think there's some valid conversation to be had there. Well, speaking of valid conversation, I think it's time for connecting points, fellas. Who's first? I agree. Well, I'll That's go awesome. first. I'll, I'll jump in and then read. You can, you can follow me up, but okay. I think that for me, since it ties in perfectly with what we were just talking about, Scotty having a breakdown at the top of that tower saying, why me? Why me? It, it reminds me of that feeling of being used by a woman um, or another person in general, uh, specifically, though, being emotionally manipulated. And I'm not sure if that's something that everybody's experienced, but I know I can relate to that. Um, and it's one of the worst feelings you will ever have. It's so hard to overcome no matter what comes next. And so despite the fact that Judy proclaims her love, how can you ever believe someone that's lied to you? on that level, I, I believe it makes me realize just how much I believe that lies are one of the most difficult wrongs that you can ever overcome in any relationship. Um, trusting once is hard enough, but in this scenario, trying to rebuild it and trust it again is nigh impossible and leads to the kind of breakdown that Scotty has at the top of this tower. No, I'll cut in line because mine's a little slighter and I know Reed's ears is a lot stronger. But um, my connecting point that kind of grabbed me was um, the water rescue at the base of the Golden Gate Bridge early on in the film is for me where kind of business picked up and intrigue kind of clicked on. Because like you said, in that first third of the film, it's very much a just kind of a, a light, almost gumshoe mystery of, oh, let's walk around and see what happens. Let's observe, you know. So it, first off, it's it's a beautifully created scene with, you know, obviously the location combined with the, the rear projection and just, yeah, you know, and I know it's not really stunt work, but just, just that, that swelling moment of like, Oh man, here we go. Um, because high drama is kind of on the line. Um, but for me, what makes it a connecting point is because it's, it's, it's the first push into a darker thing because the voyeur had to stop watching and actually get involved. And once he did it, um, it just all turned, you know, it leads to that very veiled scene of seduction and lust when Scotty brings Madeline to his home to recover. And I love Freakin's breakdown of that in the, um, in the commentary where, um, he describes how this scene of how, you know, Scotty had to get her to, to his bed. Obviously she's without clothes, which means he's seen her naked and all of just the, all of the wheels that have had to turn in Scotty's head to make all this happen and have the fireplace on and attempt a bit of his swagger and, and, you know, and just the creep starts to kind of come out from the voyeur where the honest man who's just helping his friend look over or, you know, see to his wife all of a sudden now turns into the pursuer and the wanter. And from there, that's the connecting point for me because from there stakes were raised and the grip it began to tighten and curiosity morphs to obsession from there. And I, for that, that's the tipping point for me that I really enjoyed. I think for me, it's still the very first time I saw it. And even with as many rewatches as it is, there's so many scenes that I love, but my most enthralling part, the part that I wait for and the part that I get most excited about is the dream sequence at the two thirds mark. Um, mm. He believes Madeline has died. He's laying in bed. He is haunted. The, the combination of the graphics, the images, the colors that strobe onto the screen, um, the moment where he's standing, remembering that moment where he's talking to Elster and there's the dead woman, the Carlotta woman standing right in, in between them, the metaphors that take place in those 
three to five minutes are just impeccable. And, and that's always what draws me in. To me, that's really a hinge point for the film. That's where everything, all of the themes and all of the visual imagery and all of the, the metaphorical explorations that the film's scratching at are all sort of bucketed into that one little sequence. And then they spiral out into the broader narrative and character interactions. But for me, it's that brilliant and, and beautiful dream sequence. Mm, it's gr- certainly one of the picks. most memorable moments of the film. I mean, it's, it's one of the things that you have lodged in your brain. It's that photo realistic memory thing where, you know, you're not going to remember every scene, but you're going to remember that sequence for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a signature piece. You know, it's, it's amazing. Well, Reed, why don't you kick us off with your lesson? Um, I know you're going to have to take off here, so I want you to get what you have down in and uh, it's been great having you since we probably are not going to say goodbye to you after this. Oh, sure. Uh, sure. Yeah, no problem. Give your lesson and then go ahead and get on with your life. <laughs> no, no problem. Well, I appreciate you guys having me. So my lesson, I'll keep it brief, is just my, my lesson here. Um, uh, it's it, it's quoting a scripture verse. I'm not going to bring into a whole bunch of spirituality, but I think the language here is so prescient. There's a scripture verse that says, why do you seek the living among the dead? And even looking at this film from the psychological and emotional aspect, there's a lot in the film about people obsessing over death. The first third of the film, they're looking at uh, the possibility that that Madeline is being possessed by this Carlotta character. And that's what the first third of the film is. Um, and then that carries on even through the affair story with Scotty and Madeline. They still are haunted by this Carlotta figure. But then even after that, when it seems that Madeline has died, then Scotty is obsessed over Madeline and he wants to recreate Madeline. Judy wants to go back to the relationship she had with Scotty, this now debunked dead relationship. And so there's so much in the film about like looking back. Midge is also kind of trying to look back and, and sort of assimilate something that's a bit dead and decayed. She paints herself as the picture of the Carlotta image. And so there's a lot to reflect on in this film about how we ourselves We'll look back at, I'll just classify it very broadly as dead things, uh, dead ideas, dead time periods, dead relationships. And we become obsessed with trying to recreate them. And in doing so, miss the very real, vibrant and living relationships and opportunities that we have right in front of us. That if we were able to let go of the, the sort of the dead places and the dead things, we would have much more freedom and liberty to move on with our lives, to move on with our healing and with our kind of our wholeness. And so that's much of what my current reflections around vertigo speak to me of, of just this idea of seeking the living among the dead, like walking the tombstones, trying to recapture something that has long been gone instead of moving forward into something that might be even more wonderful and beautiful than we could have imagined, but we can't let go. Um, it's like, you know, Scotty says we keep souvenirs of a killing, you know, like it shouldn't have been that sentimental, you know, like we look back and, and we, we look at these things in our life that really we should be past and should be over top of. And then, uh, we, yeah. And then we continue to obsess over trying to recreate that. And that's a lot of the lesson that I take away from vertigo, at least in these recent rewatches. Well done. Good stuff. Nicely done. Well, thank you very much, guys. It's been a real pleasure. I really uh, thank you for having me on and uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Get a social media show plug quick. Sure. You can find me at at Reed Lackey on Twitter. You can also find my show, The Fear of God, at The Fear of God, where me and my host, Nathan Rouse, uh, view horror films from a Christian perspective. And it's always a fun, interesting conversation. So, yeah, those are the main places you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, at The Fear of God or at Reed Lackey. Great. Well, Dom, we're... 
do you fall as far as lessons go? This is your area of expertise. What did you come up with? You know, it, this was hard for me because they're, I didn't want to steal for Friedkin and do Obsession and go because they're too easy. And I think we've covered them already. So I, I kind of boiled it down to, and I admit I kind of went biblical too. Um, I went to the commandment. I said, don't covet another man's wife. Um, Scotty really wouldn't. And maybe this sides more to the farcical end of how I like to do these lessons of my reviews. But honestly, Scotty wouldn't even be in this mess if he just kind of tempered his gaze, resisted temptation and just shied away, looked the other way, maybe told his friend to hire a professional to check on his wife. Now, don't get me wrong. It turned into the scheme and how he was targeted and all that. But if, if he could just, yeah, I just have some self-control, look the other way, um, notice midge a little bit better and, and just, you know, maybe a little bit where Reed was going, you know, if he could turn the obsession towards the present and the good things in his life, he wouldn't even be in this mess, you know, and it, and it starts with coveting another man's wife. So that was, that's the easiest, lightest way I'll kind of tiptoe and finish this one because the rest of it is just so heavy and can be hammered in a lot of ways where that's, those are words, better words have been said about the film, but more than I can do. Yeah, well, mine is I'm going to steal a tagline that I read and it just worked perfectly. And that is the folly of romantic delusion. Ooh, that's I, good. I that's spoke really about this a little earlier because this is really what I resonated with the most during the film, which is those dual perspectives where I feel like Scotty's growing obsession over Madeline is based entirely on that appearance and that sexuality. And so – in essence, he fools himself into believing what he wants because it would lead to his ideal outcome if it was to be true. And so I frequently have done that. I mean, I, I have believed things to be true that are not. And, and that anyone in their right mind could step back from and say, Aaron, what are you doing? Why are you possibly thinking that that could be the way that this is, situation is going? Don't you see this, but you can't see the forest of the trees because you're in it and you want it so bad that everything around you is warping and twisting. And in your mind, it is becoming in a way um, supportive of the outcome that you desire. And so that's how Scotty's obsession with Madeline works. And yet, like on the other side of that coin, you, you know, you have Midge who not only is she spurned by him, but she's unrelentingly caring. She's grounded. She offers him the opportunity for a mature relationship of equality. And yet she's consistently rejected by him in favor of just chasing after this dreamlike romance that's in his head. That's not even a real thing. And so for me, that's where the lesson is, is choose a partner for the right reasons. And value the personality traits that matter most over that spark of emotion or heightened flow of testosterone. It's hard. It's not yeah. easy to do in the moment, but try. And if you're a friend or a family member to someone and you see a person going this Scotty route, step in, at least yeah. attempt to help them understand and view their obsession for what it is. It may not work, it may not. I mean, these are powerful things, these emotions that we're talking about that Scotty is experiencing. But if you are intentional about it, I think that's the lesson here. You have to be intentional. You have to know 
how to see that it's coming and that you're overvaluing something based on desire and step back from that. Be willing to risk the the fallout of stepping back from that. So that's my lesson. I love that. Well said. Well said. I, I admit I've been there. Um, my brother's divorced from, from his wife and it was that classic, like just kind of chasing tail kind of version where everything about her personality was just not very well matching to what, what I know my, the kind of character my brother is and, and, and just where, where his desires were and even where family's desires were. And, but you know, you can, I can only nudge him. I couldn't tell him otherwise, but at the same time he had to go through it. So I totally know what you mean. I love the way that you just, the the title that you just used of it just romantic delusion you know that yes you're coming at it with romance you're coming at it with maybe you know some love and some and some and some allure in mind but where is that coming from where are you getting that from and uh, and just how that all comes back to vertigo is a lot of people have kind of said that this is such a very personal look at hitchcock um expressing and putting into film very much his own obsessions you know the hitchcock blonde thing the the chubby guy who couldn't get a girl and just it's that's another fascinating layer that could be another show and a half it's just where the man behind the film is speaking from to make this film like what kind of guy comes from whatever place to put this on film put Mm -hmm. this on put this on a script put this on screen and and that the man behind the film is is fascinating as the film we're watching and reviewing. It's 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 incredible. Um, I I I'm sitting here stuck on that word masterpiece, but I I I feel like it's on that level. It has to be. There's too many good technical things in place. The emotionality is stronger here than than the tropes that are that have become his suspense cues in other places. Where this is just such on such a different level for him from a personal oddball standpoint, but at the same time, um, a sharpness. I don't know, Aaron, where do you, I mean, I, I don't have a Hitchcock list and on Letterboxd or anything, but where is it for you? Oh, it's my number one. I mean, it's, it's yeah. undoubtedly my number one. I haven't seen a lot though. So it's, yeah. I mean, I come at that with a grain of salt because I've seen some of the greats. I've seen this and rope and psycho and North by Northwest, but I, I mean, mm-hmm. I haven't seen the birds. I haven't seen shadow of doubt. I haven't seen strangers on a train, Okay. There's a whole slew of his films that I would love to eventually get to. But for me, I, I truly don't think anything is going to top this one. So we'll see. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I, this will make us dive into the AFI 100 and see if there's another one on the list at some future point in our travels down the CWC here. Well, speaking of that, Don, where can people find you online and what is next in our travels in connecting with classics? Well, first and foremost, you can find me online anywhere you search for Every Movie Has a Lesson. My review and work is on everymoviehasalesson.com, but you can search that on Twitter, Facebook. Medium.com is the second production shingle where I put a lot of my work. And uh, uh, currently, that's kind of where things are moving a little bit. In terms of where we're going next, uh, we're going to embrace the heat of summer because August steamed things up. And there's nothing hotter in this world than a trip to the desert. And another film celebrating a bit of an anniversary this year and just being huge and worth our time entirely because it takes a lot of time to get through it is Lawrence of Arabia. And I will fully admit right now, it is a blind spot that I have never finished. So this wow. will be fun. Oh, good. That'll be fun. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm excited. I can't wait to watch it again. Uh, I have seen it and also get to talk about it. 
uh, condensing our thoughts in this incredibly large film is going to be a, a common reoccurring theme with some of the movies on this list. I think it's the first one we've had to tackle that's in that three hour epic range, but there are more. And oh, uh, yeah. we'll have to learn how to talk in a way that doesn't last three hours as well. So uh, for me, <laughs> listeners, you can find me online everywhere at Feelin Film Aaron, F E E L I N F I L M A A R O N. Or tweeting from the show's main account at Feelin Film. You can also find myself and Don as well in the Feelin Film Facebook group, which is a great place to come and chat with other movie lovers any time of the day, 24 7, 365 days a year. Don, this has been great. Um, what a fun episode. I'm so glad we got to cover this one. Yep. Spe- extra special thanks to Reed. His expertise and his, his absorption of all of this is awesome. And you can hear it in the way he talks. Uh, In the meantime, folks, thank you for listening. As always, stay positive and keep connecting with classics.